Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for today, the beautiful weather we have outside. Thank you, Lord God, for this day that we can worship you and celebrate you, honor you. And Lord, I pray that as we come before you, may your word speak to us. May your Holy Spirit remind us of your love. We give you this time and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I mentioned uh, in prayer requests, it's kind of sad once again, we start off a week in tragedy. I remember when the news broke out that there was another shooting. And it's sad to say that when you follow something, you see mass shooting or active shooter somewhere, it's almost as if we get desensitized that we think, oh, here's another one. But when you hear that what took place again involves not only a school shooting, but also little ones, I, it just breaks my heart. It's still unbelievable that we have, again, another shooting involving little children. And I know this is kind of a layered conversation that's not solved by just addressing one issue. This idea of the amount of violence that we're seeing and in, in the, these active shooters, and particularly in this situation. But I think what we should all be able to conclude when we see every these, all these things happening, what we all should be able to be in agreement and conclude is that we are definitely living in some evil times. We are living in evil, evil times to such a degree of evil that it's leading people, regardless of what they're going through, their circumstances, leading people to commit murder on innocent little ones. We can't get lost in that, and it's just tragic. And uh, I know following it and reading the story and following the coverage, um, shortly after they showed the footage of the brave officers, the brave officers who went in at the risk of their own lives, they went forward, they went towards the shooter to find, to, in order to eliminate the risk and protect more lives. And, you know, I think sometimes we take it for granted. We take for granted police officers. We take for granted first responders. Those who truly risk their lives to go towards danger to save innocent people. We take it for granted. We just assume that if you're a police officer, you're a firefighter, you're a paramedic or whatever, or you're a soldier, that, well, we just assume you're going to go in and risk your life for innocent people, right? We just assume that's going to happen. And sometimes we, it's not till afterwards that we really appreciate, wow, they went towards danger at the risk of their own lives being taken themselves to protect innocent people. And I don't know if you, if you watched the coverage, but you saw the faces, particularly the children. You look at the innocent lives that were taken, both adults and the children. I don't know about you, but you look at them and you, you, you want to think that if you were in that situation, right? If you were placed in a situation, you want to believe that you would also respond the same way. That you would want to, you would be willing to risk your life for the sake of innocent ones. Um, I, this, one of the reports is that one of the young girls lost her life because she tried to trigger the fire alarm 
And at that, and at, by doing so, her life was taken. Right? And we, we take these moments for granted. And I remember, you know, thinking about this, I've always thought, if I'm in that situation, I want to believe that I would respond the same way. If I see these innocent faces, that I would put my life on the line, right? And we, most of us would probably think, you know what, I want to feel like I can respond the same way. But it made me kind of think for a second. It made me think, well, if I look at these faces, yeah, I can say I could put my life in front of a bullet for the sake of these innocent people, right? But it made me think, would I feel the same way for people who weren't so innocent? Like, I can imagine for a school shooting, a church shooting, if, I'm, if something happened here, I would like to think that I would put myself in front for you all. Right? I'd like to think that. If this was a prison, would I feel the same way? Would I feel the same way for people who may not seem so innocent? Would I be the same, show the same willingness to sacrifice my life? Because if we're honest, we evaluate in our minds, right? Like, who do I think is worth putting my life at risk for and who is not? Now, I want you to turn around and look and see who is worth risking my life. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now you're going to do that afterwards, aren't you? No, don't do that. But we do that, right? For our family, certainly. Little children, we can see that. Would we do it for a criminal? Would we do it for someone who's not so nice? We rightfully admire the brave for sacrificing their life, right? We put them on pedestals, we honor them. But do we fully appreciate and understand what Christ did for us? Do we really understand and appreciate what Christ did for us? Today is Palm Sunday, and today we recognize when Jesus rides into Jerusalem right? And the people receive him, and, and they have this hope that he is the Messiah that they're looking for. So they greet him, and they would sing their praises as they would for the reigning Messiah coming into Jerusalem. We looked at this passage back in November, right? Kind of crazy, right? So if you want to know the, the traditional passage of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, you can go back to the previous message. You can watch it or, or listen to it on audio uh, back in November, right? But the people, when Jesus was coming in, they didn't realize that before he can be the triumphant Messiah King, he must first be the sacrificial Lamb of God. Before Jesus can be acknowledged as the reigning king, he first needed to be confessed as Savior. Right? Before he sits on the throne, he must first be nailed to a cross. And before we can receive salvation, Jesus must stand in our place. So as we look in this message today, I want to encourage us to take some time. Take a moment in these next whatever minutes we have to let the moment soak in and appreciate what the Lord is enduring in our place.
what has taken, what's taking place, what he endured for us. Last week we left off, we looked at both Jesus and Peter, right? Their experience. Jesus and Peter both were under the pressure and under fire, under scrutiny, right? Both were confronted with accusers. Jesus stood before the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Peter was before some servants. Jesus faced the highest Jewish authority. Peter faced their servants. Jesus affirmed who he is, that he was the Messiah. Peter denied who he was as being a follower of Christ. Jesus stood confident. Peter was shaken, right? Peter denied knowing Jesus for a third time, and he fled for his life. Jesus stayed, stood to give his life, to give his life for us. And so we're going to take a look at, we're going to pick up where we left off. Peter ran off after denying. Verse 1, chapter 15 of Mark. And early in the morning, the chief priests and the, with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. And Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And answering, he said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate was questioning him again, saying, do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, we'll stop right there. So Mark gives an abbreviated account of Jesus standing trial, right? If you want a fuller picture of Jesus standing trial, go, I would refer you to both Matthew 27, 1 through 32, Luke chapter 23, as well as John 18. Verses 28 to chapter 19, verse 16. So if you have a, a fuller picture of what Jesus experiences and read all four Gospels, I would refer you to those three Gospel accounts as well. Because Mark only gives accounts for Jesus before Caiaphas briefly and the council and a summary of Jesus before Pilate. But if you want a fuller picture, look at all four accounts. And what you'll see when you put all four gospel accounts together from the time of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested or seized. He goes before Annas, and there he is struck in the face. Then he goes to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who is the, the, at the time the high priest. There he was spat on, he was struck, he was blindfolded and mocked. Then they go to Pilate. Then after go to Pilate, he goes, sends him over to Herod. And there he is mocked. Again, he's adorned with a robe as they mock Jesus. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate, where, Pilate, where he is beaten, mocked, and scourged even more. So there's a whole timeline that Mark doesn't give that if you read all accounts, you can read all that Jesus went through. And all of this occurred before about six in the morning. So from early evening or early morning from the previous passage to then six in the morning all this had taken place so we saw last week that the chief priests elders and scribes attempted to bring accusations against jesus when they seized him 
bring accusations to him. They're even trying to give up false accusations, trying to find some reason to charge Jesus, some reason to find some answer, some way to put him to death. So finally they ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the, do you, is this who you claim to be? And he says, I am. So from there he said, ah, blasphemy. But they also know the charge of blasphemy by the chief priest isn't going to cut it in terms of getting a death sentence from the Roman perspective. So they had to find some reason, some charge. How can we get Jesus found guilty and worthy of a death sentence? Because just because we say he's committing blasphemy isn't going to cut it. So what do they do? They bring Jesus before Pilate, who has the authority to sentence him to death. But here's the accusations. They're going to present Jesus as an insurrectionist. He's the one who's causing unrest among the people, claiming to be a king that would be a threat to Rome. So Pilate asks the question to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's interesting. Mark gives a very not-so-subtle emphasis here, right? Because as we've seen throughout our time in Mark, Jesus has not fully revealed who he was to the people. But here, Mark is making a very clear emphasis. Jesus being the king of the Jews, And the king of the Jews is put on trial on false charges. There's not a strong case for him. So here is the king of the Jews being put to trial on false charges. And Mark is going to make it a point. In fact, we see that Jesus being referred to as king of the Jews is mentioned four times just in our passage here. Two more times that we're going to see on Good Friday service. So they accuse Jesus of being an evildoer, an insurrectionist. They accuse him of saying, encouraging the people to not pay their taxes to Caesar. He's a king. He's claiming to be a king against Rome. So the chief priests, they try to make Jesus out to be an enemy of the people and an enemy of the state. And it's interesting that these chief priests are willing to compromise their integrity and portray themselves as sympathizers for the Roman government just so they can get Jesus killed. Can you, do you understand? Can you get this picture? Right? These chief priests, they're not Roman sympathizers. They're not like patriotic, go Rome. At least not all of them. Yet their hatred is so much towards Jesus that they're willing to put themselves before Pilate and present themselves as some sympathizers for Rome. Say, here's Jesus. He's causing problems. He's a threat to Caesar. He's, he needs to be found guilty. It's interesting, this picture. And you see the desperation on the chief priest. And the level of hatred towards Jesus. And I mentioned in previous messages how you can have rivals who have disagreements and they're oppositions to each other, right? 
But one thing they had in common is that they hated Jesus. And how much of that we see today? Right? You have all these different oppositions, different religions, different sides of the political spectrum, all these kind of things, social issues. But there's a common disagreement. What do we do with this Christian thing? What do we do with this Jesus thing? Right? We see that sentiment today. So Pilate asked the question to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And it's interesting, Jesus' response is that, well, basically, in, in our, how we would say it is, well, you said it, not me. That was Jesus' response. Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response, you said it, not me, right? It's as you say it. Go on. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up, but because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. I'll stop right there. See, when G- he asked Jesus, are you, the, are, you the one, are you the king? And Jesus responds that way. They continue to accuse him with everything they can find. And all Jesus does, his response is silence. And Pilate's amazed. Why is he amazed at Jesus' silence? Because our natural inclination, if someone accuses you of something outrageous, or they accuse you of being someone that you're not, or saying something that you didn't say, what's your response? You want to defend yourself, right? You're going to speak up for yourself. But Pilate's amazed. All these charges are being brought to Jesus, and he doesn't say a word. And now what we have here is there was a a man in custody named Barabbas. He was a true criminal. He was guilty. He was an insurrectionist. He was a robber. He was a murderer. And so Pilate presents this opportunity. He says, look, I'm willing to release Jesus. I find no fault in this man. It's interesting. What does the crowd say? The crowd They weren't having it. It's interesting, throughout Mark, remember the crowd was a character in our stories, as we've seen throughout? When we see throughout Mark, we see a crowd coming to Jesus because they wanted to hear him teach. There was a crowd around Jesus because they needed a miracle, they needed healing, they needed saving, and so they went to Jesus, they flocked him because they had a need. We saw that throughout Mark. Here we see a different crowd. This crowd is shouting out, but not shouting out praises. Pilate says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Isn't that interesting? Pilate, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Now, I don't really believe Pilate believed Jesus was the king. I think he was doing what we call trolling. He was trolling the chief priest, right? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? He probably doesn't believe he's a king. He doesn't really care. He sees no threat in Jesus. 
But what do they cry out? We want Barabbas. This is the degree of evil and a hardened heart that we see. This is the level of hardened heart we see with the chief priests. To such a degree that they said, we would rather you release a convicted, a known murderer and criminal over Jesus. That's the level of hardened heart we see here. And I've, you, you guys, you know, I, I've kind of warned you guys, and we've talked about this, the dangers of a hardened heart. The dangers of a hardened heart towards God lead you to do things that you would never think you would do. A hardened heart towards God leads you to have attitudes that you may never think you would have had before. To face consequences you never thought you would face. Because when we start having a hardened heart towards God, what we find is we start distancing ourselves to God, don't we? And it leads you to destructive thoughts, destructive perspectives. And eventually it will lead you to reject the one that truly loves you. If you have a hardened heart towards God now, you're like, oh, I don't want to hear about God. I don't want to hear what God has to say. I don't know if I believe in God. And so I just, I, that heart gets harder and harder. You will find yourself going down a path that leads you further and further away. Verse 12. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? Now again, Pilate trolling the people, right? What should I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Notice, man, Jesus' silence is so smart. They brought him up, saying, He's the king of the Jews. Well, if you think he's the king of the Jews, what do you want me to do with your supposed king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted back, crucify him. Again, the degree of hardness turns to blind rebellion and hatred. Even Pilate says, what evil has this man done? done they have no response but to say put him to death not just crucify him crucifixion was excruciating was a brutal pain but that's all they can say the mob the crowd said crucify him i've mentioned before beware of the loud voices that you pay attention to in your life. Pay attention to the voices that, will, that seem to persuade you. Right? What voices persuade you most in your life that really affect your attitudes and your thoughts? How you, have, how you live your life? Who shapes your attitudes and thoughts? Because those voices speak loudly. And if those voices aren't leading you to Christ, those loud voices in your life, 
is going to be the voices that come against you for being a Christian. Just like we saw with Peter, right? We saw the example with Peter. Peter started off brave. He's like, I'm going to go follow, see what happens with Jesus. But how did he do it? He did it with self-preservation. I'm going to follow, but at a safe distance. So I don't get arrested. And he found himself being among people who were saying, hey, wait a second. You're one of them, aren't you? You're a follower of that Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter found himself under the pressure, and he caved in, and he said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the guy. That's not me. And as the heat came on, he felt the pressure, and he just said, may God curse me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And that's what the crowd will do. If the voices that we pay attention to isn't leading us to Christ, they will be the voices that speak against you as a Christian. Verse 15, And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scores, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, And they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing before him. Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. Jesus did not fight their accusations. He didn't defend himself or attempt to prove them wrong. We see in John's gospel, Jesus admits and has a more dialogue with Pilate. And he says he is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Pilate wanted to let him go. But the crowd refused and insisted to release the criminal, the guilty, instead of the innocent Jesus. So we see Pilate gave in, wishing to satisfy the multitude. He gives in. He wants to satisfy the multitude. Now let's not mistake it. Pilate is not a good guy. Okay? Let's not mistake it. He is a politician. He is out to look out for himself. He's not even concerned about his constituents here, right? He doesn't want to tick them off. He doesn't want to get in trouble with his superiors. So he's just wanting to go with whatever the crowd is saying. And again, Again, I emphasize this. Beware of the crowd. Beware trying to satisfy the multitudes. If you're trying to live your life to satisfy the multitudes, it's not going to happen. If you're going to live your life trying to satisfy people, it's not going to do it. If you're willing to compromise your faith, your integrity, your relationship with God because of the crowd, it's going to lead you down a bad path. 
And we see at this point, Jesus had already been brutally beaten. He was struck in the face multiple times with fists and reed. He was spat on. He had a crown of thorns that was woven into, thrusted on his head. He was mocked by the council and now mocked by Roman soldiers. They put a robe on him to mock him as a king. And we see Pilate ordered Jesus to be scourged. What does that mean? Under Roman method of scourging, the person was stripped down, bound, tied, bending in a bending posture to a pillar or maybe a frame, stretched out on a frame. And the scourge involved leather, a whip with leather thongs, straps, weighted with sharp bones, pieces of bone and lead. So when they were struck, the person was struck. Not only did the whip hit their back, but wrapped around their body. And as it was pulled back, the pieces of bone and iron would tear into the flesh. Point being, the person who was being scourged wasn't just beaten. They were mutilated. Jesus was not just beaten, not just humiliated. His flesh was torn to the bone. It's a wonder he's lasted as long as he did on the cross. It's interesting. Mark begins the passage noting the whole council was present in sending Jesus to Pilate. And here we see at this point, Mark points out the whole Roman cohort gathered to mock Jesus. The whole council, Jewish council, was there to mock Jesus. The whole Roman cohort was there to mock Jesus. The decision to put Jesus to death was not just a Jewish one. It wasn't just a Roman one. Both had a hand in Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 20. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem with the crowd praising him as a Messiah, coming into Jerusalem with the hopes of him being the Messiah. Here, Jesus exits Jerusalem with the crowd jeering him, mocking him as a king or Messiah. Jesus stood in our place. Falsely accused, condemned for the truth, brutally brutally beaten, but he stood in our place. See, we focused on the events that took place that led him to the cross. 
all those things, all those factors and how it played out. But ultimately, God's plan was fulfilled. God's plan was for Jesus to stand in our place. He took the shame. Not his shame. He took our shame. For us, maybe we think about this, we think, man, this is kind of an absurd plan, right? Why didn't God just like designate a lamb and say, here's your sacrifice for sin, here's his lamb. Why did Jesus have to come? Why did the eternal son of God have to take on human flesh? Experience a brutal, brutal physical beating. Die an excruciating death for our salvation. Why did he have to? Why couldn't he have just designated a lamb, just like the old sacrifice? It's a good question, right? I don't think any of us would choose to experience that as a token, as a sign of love. If you're to think about it, ask yourselves, like, what do you require someone to show or prove to you they love you? What do you ask of them? Gifts every now and then? feed you, clothe you, do nice things to you, right? We usually don't require, I need you to die for me in order for me to believe that you love me. We don't usually require such absurd kind of level of devotion. Yet look at what kept Jesus. You ask him, what kept Jesus standing in that position? withstanding mockery how many of us can withstand people mocking us to our face before we slug back how many of us can take someone spitting at our face being hit being beaten being mocked being shamed what kept jesus standing in that spot take the beating it was the love of the king The love of the king kept him standing in that spot for you and me. If you think about the degree of love that God has shown us, can we ask for any more sign of love than what Jesus did? To stand in our place? Take our shame? Jesus had nothing to be ashamed of. He had no guilt. There was no charge other than the truth of who he was. He stood in the place of the guilty. And yet, what do we ask of God? So easily questioned. God, if you loved me, God, if you loved me, you would do this for me. The love of the king proved his love towards us. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That was Christ's love. 
It's not that we loved him first. It's not that we were deserving of it. But what he did is he sacrificed, he took our place. His sacrifice was sufficient and enough to cover our sin and shame and guilt. The thing to end on, I'll end with this. Our marinade. My marinade today is a very simple ingredient, okay? It's not a five, three-point ingredient marinade. It's just one ingredient. One, one ingredient marinade. I won't get into food. Tangent. Not going on a tangent. Here's my simple ingredient for us to marinate and think about. Jesus took my place. Think about that. Jesus took my place. He was innocent. Yet he stood as if he was a guilty man. He took on our shame so that we wouldn't have to pay the ultimate penalty. So that we don't have to live in shame anymore. The love of the king stood in that place and withstood the beating, the mockery, and the shame. Because that is the extent, that is beyond even. His, the extent of his love towards us goes even beyond that. But what more do we ask of God to show his love for us? I want us to think, to think about that. As we go into Good Friday, we'll look at Jesus on the cross. Next Sunday, we look at the glory of resurrection. But if we can just think about that, take some time to appreciate. We honor bravery when we see it in person, right? Those officers who go in and risk their lives. Jesus took on so much greater for our place to show you the love of the King, how much He loves you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for your great love for us. You stood in our place. so that we can receive forgiveness and salvation, restoration. Lord, I pray that we would love you. And thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.